for another generation of worship people, Jesus-loving people. I am grateful to God. Uh, we have an incredible, incredible worship ministry here at Sherwood, and praise the Lord, there is another generation that is coming that has a heart for the Lord and a heart for worship. So I have been working on a list of what might be referred to as pastoral party killers. And if you're wondering what that term is, I'm going to give you my definition. And that is pastoral party killers are statements made at the beginning of a service that have an uncanny tendency to suck the enthusiasm and life right out of that service. And people go from usually pretty engaged or at least remotely interested to either asleep or unengaged in just a matter of minutes. So I'm going to share a few of those with you just to see if you can connect. Statement number one, a pastor gets up to preach and says, over the next several hours, we're going to walk through the book of Numbers. Now, I know all scripture is inspired. It is God-breathed. I'm, I understand that. But there's not a lot of people who wake up on a Sunday praying for a message on genealogy. Uh, statement number two would be a pastor starts the message by saying, today is part nine in our series on why you're not giving enough. <laughs> now, regardless of your perspective on giving, chances are if you cannot make your point after the first eight messages, you might have missed it. And then statement number three is a pastor begins a service by saying, today we're talking about sin. I tried that out this morning just in case you all were wondering. Um, so anyway, I, I can say there's a group of people, regardless of the topic, that are going to be excited about it. It's in the Word of God. It's a topic they're interested in. They just, they love to hear the Word of God taught and shared. But I will say that passages and messages that are the most meaningful in our lives are usually the ones that are the most connected to what we're currently walking through. There's something about walking through some things, praying about them in the week, and then you show up on Sunday and the pastor is addressing that topic, that there is a personal side of that. It's like, God, not only do you know what's going on, but you've heard my prayers and your word is so relevant. There's, there's just something powerful about going into God's word and seeing how it is practically lived out in our daily lives. So I say that because today we're going to read a text that has some really big theological terms. We're going to delve into some topics that do not seem from the surface as though they are immediately applicable. We are going to unpack this one massive thought of the Apostle Paul that the further you go into it, almost the more confusing the topic becomes. And I say that because when I read the text, you're going to have a tendency, very likely tendency, to like say, uh, okay, I'll wait till next week and I'll try to pick back up again. Because it's deep. I cannot encourage you enough to stay focused. Stay with me. It's going to be worth the journey as we work our way through. In fact, you're going to find that this exact text is going to be the basis for the Christian life you want to live. A lot of your prayers that you've been praying, the answer is found in understanding what's going to take place in this set of verses. I cannot encourage you enough 
if all of a sudden your head tilts back and your eyes start to close, camel flies circle around your head, all I could say is encourage somebody, nudge you, wake you back up, and stay in the fight. We're going to be in this text, and again, I, I am overemphasizing it because when we read it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So I invite you to go with me tonight in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 3 through 14. I want to read the entire text, but we're only going to focus afterwards on maybe the first couple of verses, verses 3, maybe through 6. So let me say this as you find your place in Ephesians 1. This is going to be a path that is going to stretch you. It is going to challenge you. It is going to make you uncomfortable at certain points, and that's okay. But by the grace of God, it'll be a text that will change all of us. So here's the text. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. I'm speaking on part one of a number of messages coming out of the same text entitled, You Are Blessed. And we're going to see what God has given us, our position and our possessions in Christ as a result of salvation. Here's what it says, starting in verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which are lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. With a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that, he, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. I hope you got all of that. If not, let's pray and ask the Spirit to lead us. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need you to open our mind. We need you to be able to allow truths to sink in. We need your Spirit to guide us in truth. God, there is so much that is in this text, so much to unpack in the next several weeks. But Lord, may we be willing to stick into it and to sit in these truths and to allow him to wash over our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So after reading verses 3 through 14, one commentator made this statement, and I quote, The apostle goes straight to a great moment of praise. 
one long sentence, impossible to analyze, in which each successive thought crowds in on the one before it. That's a good description of how I felt after reading that. It's like you're just getting one concept when the next one comes, and the next one comes, and the next one comes, and it's one thought coming in on the next thought. This is a section that is so packed with theological truths, so dense with these great concepts of the Word of God that it is confusing if we don't take our time to go through it. So my question is always, when I read something like this, how do we make sense of it? Where do we begin? What is the correct way to sit with a text like this and to begin to see it exactly as God intends for it to be seen? So my approach that I want to share with you all tonight is I'm going to give you a number of points of application. A lot of times this is going to be reversed. A lot of times I will teach and explain a text. I'm going to argue a point. Then I'm going to illustrate a point, And then I'm going to help you apply that point. In this one, I'm going to reverse this And I want to give you the points of application up front because if you see how it applies or what the benefit is going to be, Lord willing, you'll stick with me as we walk through the text. Does that make sense? All right. So here is the first of these truths. These truths set the stage for a lifetime of growth as a Christian. Why do you want to stick in this text? Why do you want to continue to study this text? Why are you willing to be confused in the short term in order to experience the fullness in the long term? It's because these truths set the stage for a lifetime of growth as a Christian. I don't know about you. This is me personally. I desire to continue to grow in my understanding of God and his word. I want to grow in spiritual maturity. I want my character to be transformed into the character of Christ. If that is your prayer, if that is your desire, these truths are absolutely essential for that to happen. The Bible refers to this section of Scripture. We'd call this type of section more of what you can consider to be contemplative truths. These are pondering truths. We find in Scripture that the moment a person comes into relationship with God through Jesus Christ... The Holy Spirit sets the hook of continual growth in our life. The Bible says, he who began a good work in you will complete it. A part of this is walking in that spirit-led completion that is going to happen in our lives. The Bible calls that sanctification. As the Spirit of God indwells the believer, he is going to take us on a journey of transformation. God is going to remove things, and he's going to instill things. He's going to cut pieces. He's going to build pieces. He is going to tweak. He's going to realign. He is going to develop, and he is going to destroy at certain points. Much like a potter with clay, he is going to continue to mold and to shape and to make us into the character of Christ. So in the church... We call that process a number of different things. Sometimes we refer to it as growth in Christ, sometimes spiritual maturity, sometimes character development, sometimes spiritual transformation, 
A big term we use often is discipleship. Whatever you want to call it, the Apostle Paul is going to help us see in this text that these truths are essential and necessary if a person is to ever discover and step into the fullness of God's work in their life. We need to know this text. This is setting up so much of what's happening through the rest of this book, but so much of what's happening in each of our individual lives. Second reason I want to encourage you to continue with me in this. These truths help guide our prayers in every situation. These truths help guide our prayers in every situation. When we discover the contents of our spiritual bank account, and what I mean by that is if you look in verse number three when it says that the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have been blessed. It is ours. It's referring to our position and our possessions in Christ. When we see a statement like that, the next piece comes, well, what are those blessings? What is in that spiritual bank account? What does it mean that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? When we understand what is in that account, it guides how we pray. Many Christians, listen, are asking God for things they already have. They don't know they have it. So they keep asking God for it. And he's like, it's yours. And they're like, but God, would you give it? You already have it. God, would you please give it? You've already got it. You're going to see that this text is going to help us unpack that idea. And there's so many of these. It's just not in this text. They're throughout the Word of God. For example, a lot of times believers will pray for peace. And yet Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. John 14. He says, I've given you peace. We pray for joy. And Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. We pray for grace. And yet the Bible says, my grace is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 12. We pray for God's presence. How many times have you heard somebody pray, God, would you be with us today? God, would you be with us in this moment? And yet Jesus clearly says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. One of the reasons why Christians begin to stall out in their spiritual journey is we are asking instead of appropriating. If God says we have peace, our prayer should change from God, give me peace, to God, help me to understand and access the peace that you've already given me in Christ. Do you see the difference on that? It's one, it's, it's acknowledging it's here. It's just we might not know how to access it. it. It's here. We're just saying, God, thank you for that. It's in the word. I don't know how to live that. So, Lord, would you live that peace through me? It helps guide us in our prayers. The third one is these truths result in a heart of gratitude. If we sit with them long enough, we will walk away more grateful than what we were when we started. Ungrateful hearts in dead worship are always connected together. When people do not know nor thank God for what they have, it will always be expressed in dead worship. 
When you're excited about something, you got no problem letting other people know about it. Every Saturday and Sunday in the fall of the year, people are more than happy to scream from the top of their lungs about what they're excited about, where their joy is at. By the way, I'm talking about football in case you didn't notice that. I love football. No question about it. But if, if my enthusiasm over a game is more than my enthusiasm and my praise and my worship of God, I, I have to think something's wrong. I have to think it, it's not that God is any less glorious. It is the fact that I am not looking at and I am not grateful for what I already have in Christ. But when you get a glimpse of what is in your spiritual bank account, when you get a glimpse of what Jesus has done on your behalf, when you begin to contemplate the promises that are ours in Christ, no one will have to pull the praise from your lips. You will be like David when he said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Praise is going to be the natural overflow of people understanding and having gratitude for what is ours in Christ. Here's number four. These truths bring stability even when life seems unstable. Wouldn't it be wonderful to go through the darkest moments of your life and to have an absolute confidence that God has you in exactly the right place in that moment? Wouldn't it be incredible to be able to receive bad news and know, know without a shadow of a doubt your foundation has not been shaken? You are just as stable in Christ as you have always been. It's passages like this one that help us dig the wells of stability deep. The deeper the well, the more stable the person is in life. When we walk away from these verses, Lord willing, here's what's going to happen. We should have a better understanding of God's sovereignty in our life. A lot of times Christians are not nearly as excited about God's sovereignty until they recognize their life is spinning out of control and they have no other thing to hold on to than the fact that there is a God who is holding it all together. We should have a better understanding of God's sovereignty. We should have a better understanding of our salvation. We should have a better understanding of our resources in Christ. We should have a better understanding of God's plan that is happening around the world. We should have a better understanding of the fact that we are 100% fully accepted by Christ in the beloved. That's a smattering of what we should understand when we come out of these verses. So now, let's transition to another focus. We're going to approach this text through natural divisions that happen through the Trinitarian lines. It, this is a text that is confusing, and as much as it seems to jump from one section to the other, it actually has three beautiful sections that are there. So here they are in your notes. Verses 3 through 6, it describes the will of the Father. Verses 7 through 12, it describes the work of the Son. Verses 13 through 14, it describes the witness of the Spirit. All of the blessings come from God the Father. They become ours in Jesus the Son, and they are applied by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, while the text beautifully breaks down under those main categories, it does not mean there's not going to be overlap between each person of Trinity as we walk our way through. But at least if you see the breakdowns, there's a, some type of a framework that you can begin to hang some of these ideas on. So let's begin now with this first section dealing with the blessings that come from the Father. If you would, look back over in verse number 3 because it sets it all up. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, the first thing I want to pause and just say is the concept of God as Father was scarcely mentioned through the Old Testament. This is a concept that is far more developed within the New Testament. In fact, you will notice that throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself as the Creator, Elohim, as the God of the Covenant, Jehovah, as the Lord, Adonai, as the Almighty, El, and as numerous compound names of Yahweh. It is not until Jesus comes that the fullness of God as Father now becomes apparent to us. Verse number three, it helps us to see that just as a good earthly father desires to bless his kids, our good heavenly father desires to bless his kids. He blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, it tells us two things about the sphere of those blessings. Our blessings are in the heavenly places, and our blessings are in Christ. In the heavenly places and in Christ. Now, that terminology seems confusing to a lot of people. Some are going to argue the fact that the word spiritual is going to suggest that these blessings are immaterial, not material. They're just spiritual blessings. Other people are going to emphasize that everything in a believer's life is spiritual. So it talks about both things, the immaterial and the material. Those things like clothing and food and resources and health, all of those. And then others are going to suggest that in the heavenly places means these are blessings that one day await us down the road in heaven. The key to understanding this text is actually the word spiritual. Did you know that word is only used in the New Testament in relation to the work of the Holy Spirit? So here's what that means. The focus of the verse is not on material versus immaterial blessings, but rather on the divine origin of the blessings themselves. These are ours. They've been coming to us as a result of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. So as Christians, we are blessed by the Father. It doesn't mean that the nature of those blessings is unimportant. It just means the focus is on the giver and not the gift. If you walk away from this and you're more enamored with what you have in your spiritual account than the one who put it there, you miss the point. The point is, it's God who is the one who has given it. It should be the more you see what's in the account, it should be, thank you, God. I praise you, God. I worship you, God. You're amazing, God. It's more than I can handle, God. It should lead back to praise to God. He is the one who has placed it in our accounts. Now, let's pull back for a breather. Some of you are already thinking, Paul, that's, that's too much already. You're, you're already past what my ability to process is, uh, 
is kind of letting me do. So let's step back, and I want us to now bring some of these ideas into maybe a context that's easier for us to understand. Let's say people are willing to accept the truth. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And they're like, okay, that, that seems to make sense. Seems like something God would do. Okay, I believe that as best I know how. But you know one of the things that's better than just believing God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing? Is to actually know how those spiritual blessings apply to the daily practical issues of your life. So if that's where somebody's at, like, how do I wake up tomorrow? When I get up tomorrow morning and I've got problems that are facing me, and this text says I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, how does that text transfer into living it out and seeing God work in my daily life? So here's a little illustration for that. Let's say you're going to take a vacation with your family. And you've already gotten approval for time off work, and you're excited about that. The family's excited about it. So now that you have the time blocked off on your calendar, now you start to work on some concrete plans for what the vacation is going to be. But before you can even start planning, there's one really big question you need to answer. How much money is in our account? Here's the reason I say that. If you have a $300 budget, for a family of four, uh, Europe is not in your future right now. Put up the brochures for the Bahamas. The only cruise you take is to Walmart and Dairy Queen right after it's done. You need to know what's in the account to find out, can we go? How long can we stay? What can we do? All of those, it comes back to what do we have access to? Take that idea and bridge it into your spiritual life. Spiritually speaking, every single follower of Jesus Christ is on a journey with their Savior. That is, Jesus says, follow me. The word in follow, it implies movements. He's going to lead us in life. He's going to walk with us in life. All along the way, we're taking this journey. And what's going to happen is God is going to bring you into certain situations in this journey that you're going to have to pull from what is in the account that you have in Christ. Now, why would I bring that up? Because often, if we don't know what's in the account, we make excuses for why God cannot do what he desires to do in our life saying, if you only knew what I was up against, if you only knew my past, if you only knew how broken I was, if you only knew what I came from, you would see there's no way I could do that. We need to look at this and say, this is what we have in our account in Christ. He has given us everything we need to take this journey with him. It's been paid in full. So no reason to skimp. No reason to pinch, no reason to hope, no reason to wonder. You don't have to peer through the glass and watch everybody else living a wonderful Christian life. But rather, your account has been filled so that every believer can experience life and have it more abundantly. But listen, if you don't know what's in your account, you're going to be hanging out the hojo when God is booked you at the Ritz. 
You're going to be eating Mickey D's when he's got five-star dining in your future. You're going to be in a position, listen, often our prayers, because we don't know what's in the account, is God I need. And God's reply through scripture is often, child, you already have. You're like, God, please. He's like, you've got it. It's not a question of, do you have it? You're just not accessing what is yours in Christ. So what's in the account? We're only going to get to one piece tonight. But it's enough for us to chew on until next week. Are you ready? Some of you are nervous. Here it is. What's the first piece in your account? Election. Oh, I can see it in your eyes. Some of you are already scared. Hey, no reason to be scared of doctrine. Amen? Amen. All right, here's the thing. The heart of the doctrine of election is that salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. The apostle Paul does a phenomenal job in this text describing God's role and salvation. So I'm going to just give you these statements. They're going to be popping up, but you got to see how complete the picture is. God chose us, verse 4. Predestined us, verse 5. Gave us grace, verse 6. Forgave our sins, verse 7. Lavished his grace, verse 8. Made known his will, verse 9. Purposed all things, verse 9. Included us, verse 13. And marked us with the seal of the Holy Spirit, verse 13. I'm going to give you a moment to let all that sink in. So what part on that list did we do? None of it. Salvation is the work of God. From beginning to end, it is the work of God. It is extremely rare to hear people address election strictly from a biblical basis. And the reason I say that is because when the topic comes up, there's usually one of three lanes people run into. Either one, we ignore it and act like it doesn't exist. It's in the Word. Number two, we recognize it, but we try to twist it into a palatable concept that we can understand. Or number three, we embrace it for the sole purpose of arguing a theological position with everybody we run into. Election is not a point to argue. It is not a truth to bend. It is not a doctrine to dismiss. Election is an act of grace that makes salvation possible. You all know I love the gospel. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to encourage people to live the gospel. If you cannot handle election, you cannot understand the gospel. It is the basis by which the gospel is made available to us. Verse 4, it says, God the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You and I did not choose God. God chose us. If you're a Christian today, it is not because you figured God out. 
It is because God has chosen to reveal himself and he has enabled us to place faith in this incredible gospel message. We make statements and we, we speak of passages that say things like this. We love because he first loved us. It starts on God's side and we become the beneficiaries of what he has done. Now, people will periodically ask me, Paul, what do you think about election? And I know exactly where the conversation is supposed to lead in their mind. The conversation is going to be, they're going to ask, what do you think about election? And they want me to get into a debate about Calvinism and Arminianism. It's the same, same thing every single time. So somebody's going to ask me, what do you believe about election? And here's my answer. It's biblical. It's right there in the word. We cannot run away from it. It's right there in Scripture. It is taught consistently in Scripture. Deuteronomy 7, 1 Timothy 5, John 15, 2 Timothy 1, 1 Peter 2, Acts 13, over and over in Scripture. Election is as biblical as salvation, heaven, hell, prayer, and loving God. It's right there. But here's what people want to do. People want to bait someone into some type of an argument about a man-made system and try to sometimes shoehorn your theology into somebody else's system. So I just pretty much get everybody mad on that. I'm going to make the Calvinist mad. I'm going to make the Arminian mad. I describe myself as a biblical literist. That is, I want to preach and believe the word as contextually accurate as possible. Not trying to twist it or to conform it into somebody else's standard. So when we get into a text like this and it says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, I'm going to preach God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What else can I preach? Do you want me to, to dumb down the word of God because it makes us uncomfortable with God's position? No, we can't do that. When we get over to a text that says, whosoever will, let him come, I'm going to preach, whosoever will, let him come. I'm a biblical literist. There's no reason to feel like somehow in our finite minds we can understand the depth and the mystery of how God has done things. There's a part of our walk with God that you have to be completely okay with saying, God, I don't know how it makes sense. I don't understand all the pieces. That's why you're God and I'm not. I'm okay with that. But also hear me. If you don't wrestle with some of these concepts, you're probably not paying attention to them. They will cause you to wrestle. This has been one of those pieces in my life for over 25 years. I have said, God, I don't understand this. God, there's pieces that seem to make sense one day, and the next day, they don't seem to make sense. We have to be okay letting God be God, the word of God be truth, and just simply saying, God, I'm going to trust you with that. So the follow-up question people give after they ask, do you believe in election, or what do you think about it? Their follow-up question is often, so what about free will? What about human responsibility? Well, let me say this. The Bible frequently commands people to respond to the Lord. We are called to repent, believe, come, listen, accept, obey, choose, trust in, place faith in. 
All of those passages that have those words, they indicate a responsibility of a person to act. So these types of truths, they they cause people's brains to start to melt down after a while. But in theological circles, what it's referred to as antinomy. Antinomy is when there are two truths that seem opposite found in the Word of God, but both are true because God said it and it's in His Word. That's what we come into on something like this. So our mind wants to release the tension. But you know what you find when the tension's not been released? It drives you back to God again and again for more understanding. That's okay. So the Bible is filled with these types of antinomy. For example, have you thought about how it is that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man? How does that make sense? It doesn't in our finite mind, but the Word of God is very clear about that. What do we do? We simply hold it out and say, God, I'm going to trust you. What about the Trinitarian nature of God? One God who has revealed himself in three persons. And sometimes people try our cute little ways of explaining it, and we're like, well, God is kind of like different types of water. It's liquid at some point, and ice at some point, and vapor at other points. The problem with that is it's actually heresy. It's a form of what's referred to as modalism. It's the idea that God is only in one particular thing at any particular point. He's only in one mode as liquid and one mode as a solid and one mode as a vapor. But that's not what we find with the Trinitarian nature of God. One part of God does not stop existing because the other two parts are in full existence. So even our ways of trying to understand it, sometimes we just have to sit there and say, God, I trust you. This is another one of those texts. When people come to Christ, often we want him to remove the tension. And you find as you walk with him, he brings you into greater tension than you ever imagined. I like what John MacArthur says about this. He said, and I quote, God's sovereign election and man's exercise of responsibility in choosing Jesus seem opposite and irreconcilable truths. And from our limited human perspective, they are opposite and irreconcilable. We should let the antinomy remain, believing both truths completely and leaving the harmonizing of them to God. End of quote. Amen. So none of what I just described on election, none of that gets in the way of what Jesus has clearly told his church to do. Preach the gospel to every creature. It doesn't get in the way of that. Did you know the command of Jesus is not preach election to every creature? It's preach the gospel to every creature. Some people say, if if I believe that, then I'm not going to share the gospel. No, you're either sharing the gospel or you're walking in disobedience. You can believe the truths of God's word and say, God, I don't understand that, but that doesn't get in the way of obedience in this area. We need to teach the whole counsel of God but also recognize that doctrines like election are often those that are there to lead the saved into deeper worship and adoration for what God has done. So if you are not scared at this point, Lord willing, I'll see you this next week. (laughs) Let me just say, when Christians understand that God chose them, 
not for the sake of merit or intellect or ability, but he chose them for the pleasure of his goodwill. They understand their relationship is not about performance. It's not about this is what I have to do in order to keep salvation or to please God in a way that makes him happy because I, I feel like if I do something wrong, God is going to be upset. God knew we were a hot mess when he chose us. It's not about our performance. When a person understands election in this sense, there's a freedom that you have to step away from performance-based Christianity. Your salvation is not based on your merits or works. It is based on grace by faith through Jesus Christ. That's the first piece in our spiritual bank account. We're going to pray, and next week, if more people come back or anybody comes back, we're going to keep going from there. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, how do we know these truths are hard ones to sink in? God, we recognize that truth is no less truth because it's difficult. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding hearts and simply let your word be true in every man a liar. God, we thank you for what you have given us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. We'll see you this next week.